He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Okay, Father, as we come uh, in these four weeks to the book of Revelation, uh, I want to ask that you would anoint our time together, Lord, that um, it would be powerful and life-changing, and um, God, that it would capture us. I honor you for that and bless you for it and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, tonight we're going to introduce the book of Revelation. <clears throat> we have been in the Gospel of John, which is where he tells the good news of Jesus Christ. Then uh, we went to 1 John and also referenced 2 and 3 John. And in that book, uh, he, he calls us to not be taken off course by ideas about Jesus Christ that are contrary to who he is. He calls us to not be swayed both in what we believe and how we act in relationship to the good news of Jesus Christ. Revelation is almost like an extension of 1 John. We're going to come and we're going to see that there is a battle going on between good and evil, and we are right in the middle of it, and John is going to address that from heaven, from a revelation that he gets from Jesus. And so uh, let me give you an outline that you can use to read the book, and then we're going to go through the first two or three chapters tonight pretty quickly. So first of all, um, chapter 1 has a prologue in it. It's sort of telling you what the book is. We'll look at that in a second. And then uh, that's verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 through 8 is where he gives the official greeting. Um, and then 9 through 19, it's this heavenly vision of Christ. And we'll talk about that chapter pretty much in detail. And then in chapter 2 and 3, it talks about what's going on in the church or the various churches at that time. And um, we'll, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll talk about a little bit about what was going on in those churches, but maybe a little more about what's going on um, in our church. And I, I sort of have in mind the fact that we've been praying and seeking and fasting uh, about, God, where are we? Are we okay? Do we need to change some things? What's going on? I think it's a great time to come to the book of Revelation. And then uh, the, next, the next part of the outline, so chapter 1, then chapter 2 and 3 talks about those churches. Now, chapters 4 through 19 are where all the questions come from. And it talks about what shall soon come to pass. And we will be talking about that next week. I know some people may have a few questions about it. I will answer all of your questions next week. And you might not like my answers, but, but we will have answers. And then the last thing is chapter 20 and 21. And without regard to your particular uh, theology or idea about the book of Revelation, almost er There's Tom and Susan over there. It's a miracle night. Hi, Tom. <laughs> I was just feeling empty tonight without the support of our, our senior elder, and there he is, next to the senior elderess. Um, so chapter 20 and chapter 21, uh, almost everybody agrees that, that that is in the future, that that is the consummation of the perennial uh, ideas, the perennial uh, activity of God in the earth, and I can't wait to get to that part, which will be right before Christmas. So our Christmas sermon is going to be out of those last two chapters, so uh, be reading those, and, and I, I think it'll be awesome. All right, so let's go ahead and start in chapter 1, um, and uh, th this part that I'm going to read comes out of a set of notes that uh, Dan Hamill put together. Uh, he actually put it together for a class he was going to teach down in Haiti. So, the title Revelation comes from the first word in the Greek text, uh, apocalypse. Apoc 
Apocalypsis. Yeah, you pronounce Apocalypsis. Uh, no, Apocalypsis. Yeah, the accent is on the ka. <laughs> but I can't do it. It's <laughs> that, that's it. Most people say Apocalypsis, uh, meaning to reveal, to pull back, to uncover, to unveil. Revelation sheds light on what is really going on in the world. Okay? Now, most people, when they read the word apocalypse, uh, they typically think of, oh, bad things are going to happen. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means to roll back the curtain. One of my favorite moments of the year is when uh, we are the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and the four dancers come out, and then all of a sudden, the curtains open. And all of a sudden, you go from a stage with a large maroon curtain and a few people up there to a whole new world. And for the next hour and a half, you are just in a different place because you see it. And then there's something about when those curtains close, it's like, I can't wait till next year, and the curtains open again. That's what Revelation is. It's there, but you can't see it. It's behind a curtain. And so here what happens, God pulls the curtain open. Let me keep reading what Dan wrote. Revelation is not a crystal ball which reveals mysteries about the geopolitical landscape of the final generation of humanity, as some have unfortunately made it out to be. Instead, Revelation is less is a lens which reveals the sovereignty of God over the entire universe, over the unfolding drama of human history, and also over the spiritual forces of evil. So it's not a crystal ball that pinpoints in the year 2027 the nation of um, uh, Iraq is going to be renamed Gog, and uh, Iran is going to be renamed Magog, and then they're going to have helicopters that look like locusts that are going to come and eat you. Um, it's about the spiritual forces that are at work. At work. Uh, Revelation also allows us to see the earth from heaven's perspective. With this behind-the-scene access, readers are able to discern the spiritual realities at work behind global events like wars, persecution, martyrdom, famines, oppressive empires, evil rulers, false religions, greed, materialism, etc. So these sort of perennial ideas of evil that have always been at work in the world, that's what we're going to see, what we're going to see in chapters 4 through 19. We're going to see how the spiritual warfare is, has always been, and will continue to go on until chapter 20 and 21. Revelation allows us to see the earth from heaven's perspective, and I think this is the most important thing, is being able to understand what's going on the earth with an earthly perspective, uh, heavenly perspective. And it unveils the truth about who God is, who Christians are, Satan's activities in the world, and how, despite Satan's efforts, the lamb who was slain is bringing about the salvation of mankind. All right, so that's Dan's notes on uh, sort of what Revelation is and is not. But when I was thinking about Revelation, I thought of three other places in the Bible. There's others, there's more, but three other places in the Bible where there was an apocalypsis, calypsis, apocalypsis. Oh, I got it that time, uh, an apocalypse. A revelation, just an opening of heaven. Can you think of times when there were opening of heaven? Say that again. Isaiah. Jacob. How about any New Testament apocalypses? What's that? Stephen. What's that? The Mount of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like the kids when they're doing the songs. Going to the Mount of Transfiguration. Thank you, Dr. Coburn. And somebody else had one? I had one more that I wanted to talk about. 
What's that? Yes, that's not the one I was thinking about, but yeah, I, 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 that's not the one I was going to use, but yeah, definitely. Hey, somebody over here got it. What's that? The animals coming down, yeah. The Mount of Transfiguration and the animals coming down. Yeah, all right, yeah, we got it. We'll sing a song next week. So those three, there's three times when there's an apocalypse uh, that heaven is opened up and you can see what's going and 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 i think by looking at those you can realize the significance of when god does this so first of all uh when jesus was transfigured um he had lived heaven in the body over and over and over again but the day that heaven kind of broke through and he was transfigured, and people could see him, it was pretty amazing, all right? Um, oh, there's a, a, a third one. No, Jesus, I, I, the, Jesus is the fourth one. <laughs> there's a third one uh, as well. Uh, and that's when uh, Paul, remember when Paul is caught up into the third heaven? Does everybody know about that one in Corinthians? He's caught up, and, he's, and he doesn't say it was him. He says, I'm going to glory in another man, a man who was caught up into the third heaven, but it was really himself. He just didn't want to brag. So uh, let me go with just the three human transfiguration, or the three human apocalypse, okay? So, so we'll start with, uh, with Stephen. When Stephen was about to be stoned, he had uh, preached the gospel, they were filled with anger, and you can read this in Acts 7, 54 through 60. They were filled with anger, and they were coming, and they were getting ready to stone him. And I'm going to read it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And so they stoned him, and he kneeled down, and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How amazing. How would, how would you like, at the moment of death, or at the events leading up to death, if all of a sudden you could see into heaven and you could know that Jesus is standing there ready to welcome you. Peter was the first martyr, and I believe that God gave him this opening revelation so that he could declare it, it could become the word of God, and from there on out, when martyrs were getting ready to die, whether they saw it or not, they would know that Jesus is in heaven waiting to receive them. Because remember, a martyr is someone who has lived for Jesus, has declared Jesus, and because of that, they're about ready to die. A lot of times during the persecutions in the early church, people would deny Christ. Uh, Rome had some amazing ways of torturing people and turning them away from a particular belief. And uh, one of the things they did in the early church is, if someone had denied Christ, uh, they had this big, long process by which they, they would decide if they would receive them back into communion. Well, they were going to kill you, you denied him, and now you want to come back to church. How do we do this? Of course, there was a way to do it, and they would come back. Uh, but, but here, Stephen... He didn't deny Christ, and in that moment, he saw heaven opened up. And I'm sure that was testimony that, that helped many martyrs through those periods of time. I, I bet almost every martyr would go back to this scripture. Yeah, but Stephen saw Jesus standing there. Uh, and, you know, Polycarp, when he talked about how, how Christ had, had uh, just uh, ministered to him all those years, how could he now deny Christ who had died for him? I'm sure he was either seeing or he was identifying with Stephen. So this particular opening up of heaven, you know, it's not beasts and, and, you know, 
you know, flying monkeys and stuff. It was a revelation of heaven. It was about seeing heaven and what was really going on. And it, and it was encouraging. The next one that happens is uh, with Peter. And that's over in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts uh, chapter um, 10. So they're getting ready. They're out. They're on their mission. They're out on the journey. Acts 10, 9 through 16. I'll read it. And on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened. Again, heaven is opening up. The curtains are spreading. And he sees into heaven. And out of heaven comes a vessel. And it was like a big sheet knit together at the four corners, and let down into the earth. And there were all manner of four-footed beasts therein of the earth, and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So, so the Spirit of God is playing on the fact that Peter is hungry, he's longing to be filled, and God puts down this sheet filled with creepy crawly animals and says, eat. And Peter says, no, thank you. Uh, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. And this was done three times. And then the vessel was received back up again into heaven. So this revelation, this opening up, is, is God is showing Peter out of heaven with a heavenly vision that it is no longer wrong to eat unclean animals, but even more than that, the Gentiles are no longer unclean. And the good news and the gospel is for them. Now, we all know Peter. We know that Peter needed a heavenly vision to get past his prejudice. That, that it was so clear in his mind that they were the people of God, and that the circumcision and, the, and the, the nation of Israel was God's primary purpose in the earth that I don't think he could have ever got past it if God had not opened heaven up and allowed him to see it. But he did see it, and because of that, the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles. The last one I want to look at is Paul, and that's over in 2 Corinthians. It doesn't tell us about his experience, but he refers back to it, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. It's not expeding me for me to glory, but I will. I'll come to visions and revelations now of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ Jesus more than 14 years ago. And whether it was in the body, I don't know. Or if it was out of the body, I can't, can't tell. God knows. So he's telling about this vision, and he's, you know, I don't know if my body went to heaven or if it was an out-of-body experience, but I knew a man that he was caught up into paradise or heaven and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory." Yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. Because if I gloried in it, and you knew the things that I saw, you would probably begin to worship me. And so I'll just tell you, there was this guy who got caught up into heaven, and it was so amazing, it was so powerful, that he, he can't express it in the earth. And so we know who Paul was. We know what Paul did. And we know that he opened up the gospel to the Gentiles. And he brought an understanding of Christ as the fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament because he saw a revelation of it in heaven. He says that he saw Christ. And we know that, that uh, he probably didn't seem in the flesh. He didn't meet him in the flesh as a believer. But he did, at this point in heaven, see Jesus. And they had this discussion about amazing things. Some of the things Paul didn't tell us. 
Uh, but he did tell us a lot about Christ in us, which is the hope of glory, the gospel for the Gentiles. So in all three of these, there's a specific purpose in the revelation. God opens heaven for a reason. And so now we come to the book of Revelation, and what is the reason for the book of Revelation? Why is God opening up this book? Well, he opens up by saying, like in all letters, grace and peace. And then he says, I am going to tell you things that are going to happen. He's writing to specific churches, and he says, look, at this point, I need to give Jesus, the Father says, I need to give Jesus a prophetic revelation, an apocalypse, an opening of heaven, so you guys can understand what's going on. And I'm going to tell you from heaven's perspective what's going on in your church. And then I'm going to tell you from heaven's perspective what's going on in the world. And in the midst of that, I'm going to give you some advice. And that's what the book of Revelation was all about. Here's where you are. Here's what's going on in the world. But here's how you view it from heaven. And I'm going to give you some advice once you get that knowledge. And so I think we can apply that. Uh, our, our situation is a little different uniquely, but in a broad way, chapters 4 through 19 are still going on, and they apply to us. And, and we'll talk about that next week, but let, let's keep going on. He tells you what's going to take place, and, and specifically through the whole thing, it talks about what part Christ is going to play and who he is. And then he says, and I believe it's verse 3, blessed if you hear and keep what is written. You will be blessed if you hear and keep what is written. So tonight, I hope at the end we can make some application and we can figure out how to keep what is written. How to keep what is written. How to walk in the revelation that we are given so that whatever the promise is to us, whether it's uh, you know, to, to be a pillar in the household of God or to have our name written in the Lamb's book of life, we'll be able to keep the encouragements of God. There's a, there's a lot of encouragements to, to being, uh, about being blessed. Um, this one in 1-3, but I think there's seven different times that it talks about being blessed as a result of hearing and walking and understanding what God's saying. So, I think it is important that we read this book and understand it. So in 4 through 8 is the greeting. You get greetings from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Specific greetings from Jesus who died for us and is returning for us. And at the end, in this, this uh, uh, greeting, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And so a lot of what's going to go on through here is, is God's going to encourage us Hey, I know. I know what's going on. Don't freak out. I am the beginning and I am the end. I know all things. So when things go south, don't throw up your hands. Don't get frustrated. Just hang on to the truth. And uh, I am going to let you know what I'm doing through these periods of time. Then he gets down uh, to, to verse 9 through 11. And, and he tells them, basically, listen, I'm with you in this. I am being persecuted at this period of time uh, at different levels. Christians were going through persecution. And John lets them know, hey guys, you know where I am? I'm stuck over here on Patmos Isle. And you know why I'm here? Because I was preaching the word of God. But you know what? I was praying and I met Jesus. Don't you think that was an encouragement to those churches? Because as we go on and we read those churches, we're going to see that they are facing some of the same persecution. So he writes and says, uh, I am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ for the word of God and the testimony. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then you go to maybe one of, one of the most beautiful Christological portions of Scripture. And so we're going to walk through that. We're going to go line by line. I'm just going to make some comments. So here we are. We're in the book of Revelation, 
John says, I'm going to tell you everything that's going on, things that are going to come to pass, greetings from the Father, greetings from the Son, and let me tell you a little bit about the Son. So we're going to read through it and, and, and comment. Um, there are 52 times in uh, the book of Revelation where it refers to Jesus... Um, mostly in relationship to him dying for us and being a witness. 52 times. You've got to keep that in mind. The book of Revelation keeps coming back to remind you, God died for you in his son Christ. I think the word lamb is used uh, uh, 25 or so times. So Jesus is the lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the earth. And he keeps getting referred to that in his book of Revelation. As you're going through your challenges, just remember... Christ died for you. The exalted Savior, who is also the Lamb, is coming to fight on behalf of you. And so it goes on and on uh, through there and, and talking about the manner in which Christ died for sinners. And we'll look at those in three weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about the cosmic battle. The following week, we're going to talk about uh, Christ as the warrior. Uh, but we're going to get a, a picture of Christ here as we walk through this. So... If you, if you want to walk through it uh, in your Bible, look at verse 12, and we'll just walk down through it together. Um, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he's in the Spirit, he's praying, and he hears a voice behind him, and he turns around, and what does he see? He sees a guy walking around, seven lampstands. Now, there's a lot of typology uh, and a lot of symbolism. And so these lampstands, John understands quickly that that represents the churches. He has seven churches that he's concerned about in Asia. And they are listed in chapter uh, 2 and 3. But uh, he turns and he sees Jesus in the middle of the churches. So start right there. The first thing about when you begin to see what's going on from heaven is that, yeah, Jesus is there, but he's also somewhere else. He is right in the middle of the church. And when he gets ready uh, to speak to each church, he says, I know your works. I know you. And I think sometimes we lose perspective that that Jesus himself, the Son of God by the Holy Spirit, is in our midst. Not just when we're gathered here on Saturday night, but at all times Jesus is walking with us, and he knows exactly who we are, and he knows exactly what we're walking through. So let's keep reading. We're just going to look at these real quick and just pull our minds to them. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe. So he sees him, and he's like a son of man. What do you think of when you hear one likened to the son of man? Anybody? What's that? A person? Yes, a real person. What else? The furnace? Does it say one like the son of man there in Daniel? Yeah, but I always think of Son of Man there. Somebody look it up. Is it Son of Man or Son of God? Now we're confused. So it says Son of God. In Isaiah, and Jesus himself referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title that he gave himself. Um, the Son of Man. Why is that important? Why is it important that he, he looks and he sees one who is like the Son of Man. Because Jesus was a man. He was a man who lived a sinless life. And because he overcame sin, he was able, only if he was a man, could he have become the Lamb of God. In, in our understanding of God, there is nothing that can make us righteous. Once we've sinned, 
other than a perfect sacrifice of another man. And the only man that ever lived a perfect life was Jesus Christ. And so God was willing to allow his son as a man to die in our place. So it's very much connected to the fact that he's the lamb that was slain. He had to be a man to be that. So we see this one who died for us walking in the church. Let's keep going. And what's he wearing? A long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Almost inevitably, when you read about a robe in the New or Old Testament, uh, it is pointing toward something that's called the priesthood. The priest in the Old Testament was the one who mediated between man and God. Only the priest was able to go into the presence of God. Well, Jesus, the Bible tells us, not only was he the lamb that was slain, but he was the perfect priest who was able to come and present our case before God. So, so John is seeing Jesus in all of this fullness. Oh, he's walking among us, the one who died for us, the one who intercedes for us. He's among us, and he's living in the difficulties of life. Let's keep going. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. When you think of one whose, whose hair is like white wool or like snow, you probably should think back into the Old Testament because God was referred to uh, as the Ancient of Days, uh, who, who, was, who represented um, age or... or um, it's hard to talk about heaven in these terms... Uh, but the wisdom that we understand through white hair, uh, God has it. But here it says, I see Jesus, and he looks that way. Why is that important? That Jesus would look like the Father. Remember when they, when in, in John, when he was getting ready to go away, he said, I go to prepare a place for you where I am. I'll take you there. I'm going to go to heaven, and I'll take you there. And... And they're like, well, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and yet you haven't seen the Father in me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So again, as Jesus walks among these candlesticks, he's saying, I am not just a resurrected human being but I am the very image of God walking among you. I am bringing heaven down to earth, and I am interceding on behalf of you to the Father based on what I've done in the cross. His feet were burnished bronze. His feet were burnished bronze. Always in the Bible, when it, when it talks about bronze... Does anybody know what bronze usually signifies um, in the Bible? Any thoughts? What's that? Judgment? Some. It was mostly gold and silver. Strength? Yeah. Usually it has to do with warfare. Judgment is warfare. Uh, it, it's not just ideas. It's coming and making things right. But also, whenever you would talk about the weapons of warfare and the strength of a, of a, of a nation, you would talk about bronze. And so it's talking about the strength and his ability to accomplish what he chooses to come to do. When he has feet of bronze, that means he's marching in, a, in military fashion, and he is going to accomplish what he determines that he's going to accomplish. So you can put your faith there. Let's get through these pretty quick. Um, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Okay, he's referred to as uh, 
in the Old Testament, it talks about God like the roaring of many waters. And so I don't think we're as, as, as familiar with uh, roaring waters as probably were when they lived around rivers and they'd go down and they'd get water. It would be flood time. That was a big part of their history. But I was, I was on um, YouTube the other day and I was just looking up some stuff about water. And over in China, they, they had this boat that was on the river. The river was up, and somehow the boat had gotten away. But it wasn't just a little boat. It was like a, it was like a, it was probably 150 feet long, and uh, it was a, it was a, it was an industrial boat. And it shows it. It comes along. It's floating, and it gets to this bridge, and the water is just barely hitting the bottom of the bridge. And as it hits the bottom of the bridge, uh, it stops. And it, it doesn't get pushed under the bridge, but the pressure of the water begins to crush it. And in about 15 or 20 seconds, the ship itself is crushed like a can, and then it drops under. And so the pressure of that water was able to take this steel ship and just crush it. If you've never been in a place where there's rushing mighty water and seen the power of it, you really don't understand what he's saying. Not only does he have feet shod with brass, but he's powerful, like one of the most powerful things they knew in nature, which was rushing, roaring water. I don't know if any of you all have noticed it, but, but uh, I have a little chip that's appearing in my tooth here, but it's not really my tooth. It's where my tooth was repaired. A few years ago, we went to uh, Nicaragua, and uh, I was surfing. And I fell, and there was no way I could, I could resist the power. And so the, the power of that wave took me and just beat me against the ground like, like I was a little rag doll, you know. God is able to take our enemies and much more powerful than raging water, he is able to accomplish his purposes in the earth. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I think I'm going to leave it to you to go ahead and think through that and see if you can understand what the symbolism is, uh, what you think God is, is communicating through this prophecy that he gave to Jesus about who he is as he enters in to our life. As he enters into our situation, what is he saying about himself? All right, let's go on and uh, let's hop on down to... Uh, you know, l l let me do one more. I, I, I trust you to do a good job. But there's some parts about this one uh, that I like. And it says that he has a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And I think this is important about us understanding. If Jesus is going to come and get involved in our stuff, then we need to understand all these things. But specifically, I, I like this one, the two-edged sword. Um, and, of course, the two-edged sword is what? The two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth. It's the Word of God. The sword of God is the word of God. And there's two things specifically, I think, if we're going to live this life, that it's important for us to know about the word of God and the strength of the word. So 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, 5 through 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. I'm not going to exegete it, but I, I am going to share with you two thoughts out of that scripture. Second Peter 3, 5 through 7. Here's two thoughts. One, and it tells us over in Hebrews chapter 11, 3, the same thing, that the worlds that we see were formed out of the Word of God, formed out of the Word of God. Things that are seen are formed 
out of things that are not seen. God didn't take existing matter and reshape it. He said world be and matter came into existence. At the same time, it says that that same word of God right now, God's will expressed is what holds all things together and keeps it where it is right now until he chooses to put it somewhere else or to uh, uh, rearrange it. It's created and sustained by God's desire expressed through his word. If I'm going to have somebody get involved in my mess, I want somebody who's able to speak it, and it's going to happen. And that's who God is. This is who John sees. This is who John sees is getting ready to, uh, to come in and to intervene in the earth. And I think it's important that we understand that, that they're getting ready to go through very difficult times. And so they need this revelation of who Jesus is. All right. Um, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Hebrews, it says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. And so it's the word of God. Now, remember, he's going to tell each church, here's what's going on, good and bad. But it is the word of God that helps you understand what it is that's going on in your life. How should I live? What is, you know, what is authentic humanity? What is good? What is bad? It is the word of God that is able to help you understand what that is. Um, here it says it discerns the thoughts and the tents of the heart, and it's able to divide between the spirit and the soul. How many of you ever, when you're in the midst of life, you kind of get confused. Is this because I've done something wrong? Is this because uh, natural consequences? Is this the way I should live? What should I do? The one who walks among us has the power of the Word of God. And through that, he can clarify and he can let you know exactly what life is all about. And more pointedly, here as a warrior, here as one who has uh, brass shoes and a sword coming out of his mouth is judgment. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Isaiah 11:4. but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. In other words, with the word of God, he can just speak it, and he can deal with every enemy in your life. I was trying to come up with a good example of what it means to, to have the most powerful weapon. You know, right now, uh, Ukraine is at war uh, with Russia. And one of the things that they're hoping is that we would give them more advanced weapons because it's weaponry that is, is really deciding which direction the war is going to go. And so uh, I didn't know much about real army weaponry, so I called Jake Henderson to ask him about uh, airsoft. And he says that when you hear a certain pellet coming through the air, if you hear that noise, it's over. Because in, in airsoft, they've got um, sniper rifles. And so airsoft, they all get together on the field, you know, and they're all running around trying to hide and get each other and sneak up on each other. But the guy who has one of these five or $600 sniper rifles, he'll just get up in a tree and he just waits there. And he's far enough away that you can't shoot him but he can shoot you. And uh, I called him. He was down in, in West Kentucky uh, with Kelly's brother, Scott, who's also a pastor, and they were looking for arrowheads. So I interrupted him on the side of a river, I think. Uh, but uh, Scott jumps in, oh, yeah, yeah, man, you hear that? If you hear it, it's too late. You're already dead, let me tell you. 
God doesn't have a sniper rifle. <laughs> God has the word. And all he has to do is say it. Better than anything we could give Ukraine. <laughs> Better than any sniper rifle you could get to win a pill. In the game of life, God in a moment can speak it. And he can fix every single situation. If he chooses to. But he can also, with a word, strengthen you. God himself can speak to your heart and cause you to be strong enough to live in patience until the full end of what his purposes are come to pass. All right, well, we better move on. Okay, so then after he gets through talking about Jesus, he says, all right, so here's what's going on in the churches. I'm not going to go through all these churches. I'm just going to mention one. So there's seven churches, and he mentions them sort of like in, in order. If you were going to go and um, preach to these churches, there's a certain order in which you would go because of where they are geographically. And uh, he mentions them in that order. And the first one he mentions is Ephesus. So if you start there, uh, then you would make a circle. And so as he goes... Um, with each church as he speaks. First of all, he gives an appraisal. This is where you are. And then in the midst of the appraisal, he has a call. This is where you are, so this is what you need to do. And then, if you do it, he gives you this promise, right? So, to keep the word that you hear would be what? It would be to respond to the call to your church. So in the beginning, when it says you're going to be blessed if you hear and you keep the word, then with each church, they're going to hear a different call. And if they keep that call, they're going to be blessed. And that blessing is repeated over and over throughout the book of Revelation. God wants to extend blessing on your life. He wants to stop. He wants you to figure out where you are. And then respond to what God says about your life. And when you do that, this amazing son of man, dressed in a white robe, who's interceding for you, based on the authoritative work of the cross, moves into action and brings blessing into your life. That's what this is all about. You're going to go through challenges. But if you respond to God as he works in the midst of that challenge, the end of it is going to be blessing, both now and eternally. So, here's some of the things about all of the churches. Uh, they were poor, yet rich. Some were rich, yet poor. Some were putting up with fornication and things offered to idols, and some were not. Some were lukewarm, some were not. Some congregations were mixed. As a whole, they were doing good, but you would have a few who weren't. Or as a whole, they were doing bad, but a few were still holding out and doing good. One was on the crest of an opportunity. One was at the very center of the demonic power uh, that was attacking uh, the whole nation. There's only one that didn't get corrected. In this, in this appraisal, there was nothing negative said about Smyrna. And uh, they just needed to hold on. And they were promised that they may have to go to prison for 10 days. <laughs> and then it would end. And so you've read through those churches this week. And so what I'm interested in, as we talk about this, what's going on in the world, we'll talk about that more next week. But Jesus is walking among us. What is he saying about our church? And so there are three people that I talked to uh, that gave me sort of an indication of what they identified with. So I'm going to have them come up and share with you for just a couple of minutes each. So uh, Matt and Matt and Victor, would you guys come up and just give a quick summation of, of as you read through this and trying to figure out, you know, where are we uh, and, and what would God say to us? I'd like you guys to come up and just share real briefly. Uh, and you know, can all three come up at the same time? And I'll give you a piece of licorice if you come up. I usually do that in the seventh grade. And uh, I, I got a piece for each of you. No. Uh,
I had some thoughts about the church in Ephesians, and actually, uh, this is actually a result of the fast. So I didn't. This didn't really come up uh, as a result of looking at these churches, but it was actually something that the Lord put in my heart during the fast. But it it, it is it roll right on the topic tonight. So uh, I don't. Well, uh, to the church at Ephesus, one of the things that is said is that you have abandoned or neglected or forsaken your first love. And so that was a rebuke to them, um, to the church. I guess I kind of sensed a little bit of a rebuke. Um, and I, I read a little bit about it. I think the, what is the first love? Some people say it's, well, loving Jesus, which is the primary, most important love. But a lot of people also said that the first love was their love for one another. Uh, and that's really what I was keying in on is um, that there is a there is an instruction to us not to forsake uh, that first love of fellowship with one another and that is something that our church um, well our church was built upon is having a deep authentic true real fellowship with one another uh, in Acts 2, when it talks about the very first church that was being uh, established, it says they gave themselves to a lot of things. But one of the things it says it gave them, they gave themselves to was fellowship. Uh, also, it's almost very similar in the, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Uh, he, he encourages uh, that group not to forsake or neglect or abandon the coming together. Um, and so, all that to say, I think, and I'm putting myself in this category, that the Lord is speaking to us uh, to not forsake true, deep fellowship. And true, deep fellowship requires both sacrifice to, to forego other things in life, you have a limited amount of resource, and to really be able to fellowship with other people, uh, it, there's a cost to that. You have to give things up. Uh, and then second, I really think that our culture and the speed of life and all of the things that we, um, all of the apples that we kind of see around us, they distract and draw us away from fellowship, really uniting our lives together with one another. Uh, and so I'm challenged by that. Uh, I love everybody in this room very much. And I want to not let go of that truth that our church had in the beginning and not go on to greater things or things that are more sophisticated or maybe more intellectually interesting or less <laughs> abrasive to my independence and really give the time to love you and to walk with you and to grab hold of whatever that is, whatever fellowship is. So, that, yeah. Uh, this also comes out of my time in the fast uh, kind of put over the book of Revelations like Matt more than explicitly uh, considering the, the seven churches. But uh, just like Matt, I also felt like the word coming out of the fast for us was um, essentially what Matt said, the word to Ephesus, which was you have, or to some degree have abandoned your first love. And that we, um, there's a lot of things that distract us and want to grab our attention so that we are not loving God first and loving our neighbor as ourself. And Matt has expressed some of those things more articulately than I can. Uh, but I would just amen, and I was going to share essentially exactly what Matt came up here to. And Billy can amen without ha Matt didn't even know that. So. Uh, verse... 
Um, it's, it's really, I, I thought it really, I was going to be settled on Smyrna, but Philadelphia is the church, really, that stuck out for me specifically for the following reason. Um, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We were fellowshipping yesterday with uh, uh, John and Dan, and we were just talking about Revelations and just about how it seems like a lot of churches nowadays, people are looking for the flashy thing, the big thing, the supernatural, you know, the thing that people will flock to. And Philadelphia Church was commended for low and slow, holding on. You're not powerful, but... I will reward your patience and your endurance because you have kept my word and have remained faithful to me um, in spite of a lot of the big things that might have been happening in other churches. They remained faithful to the word of God in the way that God revealed himself to them and God rewarded that for them. And I'll also add this for Victor. When we were talking, he said that, and also the church at Ephesus, um, I talked to him at lunch today, and he was recounting the, the uh, conversation that he had. And he'd, he'd chosen that church that, that had that brotherly love or had that, that sense of God's presence. Uh, but he says, and also maybe a little bit Ephesus sort of losing your first love. Well, oddly enough, I'd chosen to share about the church at Ephesus as well. So, guys, I don't think it, need, it, it takes a genius to figure out. Uh, if there's one thing... That, uh, that God would want to call us to. It would be returning to our first love. So it's going to be in that context that we're going we're to look at Revelation. We're going to look at how God would call us back to our first love as we walk through it. And so for me, first love, um, it, it's two parts. And I'll just take a second. It's 7.59. It's not that late. Hereby perceive we the very first love. The very first love is this. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's both. It's instantaneous. In a moment, we recognize God's love, and when that happens, we begin to love each other. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Romans 5, 8. But God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world being perfected in the love of God. I, I really do think exactly what Victor shared, that um, we're very similar to the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And uh, that, that goes on. But the church at Ephesus needed to come back to it in a deeper way. And uh, I believe that's, if there's one admonition to us, it's we need to come back to our first love. But where does that begin? It begins with the revelation of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, 50-something times it's going to talk about Jesus dying for you. 28 times he's going to refer to him as the Lamb of God, slain. If our love wanes toward each other, it's because our understanding of his love for us and walking in that has waned. So these next few weeks and this whole next year is going to be a call back to really reveling in the fact that one that looks like the Son of Man is walking among us 
like a lamb who was slain, representing the Father. In priestly ministry, is doing warfare on our behalf, both based in what he did on the cross, but now in his power and his ability through the word of God. That's going to be our call this year, to come back to our first love. And in that, it's two parts. Resting and the fact that he first loved us. And when we do that, we begin to love each other even more. Hallelujah. So, uh, tonight I thought it would be good to just go ahead and end with communion. To come and Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So tonight we're going to close with worship and uh, just remembering Jesus and his love. And uh, it's a joint meal. And the Bible teaches that as they did communion, it wasn't just them communing with Christ. But it was them communing together around the one who walked among them. So as we come tonight, uh, let's realize that we together are in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is in our presence. And we're remembering that he became the lamb that was slain. Uh, so that he could become that rider of the white horse that wields the sword uh, on behalf of his kingdom. Amen? Hallelujah.